Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. My friend, Red Hatter, Steve Ovens joins us for the entire episode to hang out, and we're going to discuss C groups, an introduction to C groups. So even if you don't, even if you've, this is something you've heard of, but you don't know a lot about, maybe it's a little intimidating to you, stick around because Steve and I are going to dig in uh, and, and get your feet wet with C groups. Steve Ovens, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Noah. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to be here and for being willing to stick around for not just the interview portion. Um, so, Steve, we'll get to some uh, some email. Focus on feedback, by the way, and I mentioned this in episode uh, 200, but now that you're here with me, um, we have a new system for doing feedback. And so we're going to utilize your feedback in two ways. First is we're going to pick certain questions that we're going to dig in deep and answer directly. But the other thing that we're going to do is combine feedback segments into um, show segments that we can use uh, in the future. And so if there's a particular uh, thing that you would like to hear about or hear explained, uh, write in to live at asknoahshow.com and we will make that happen. Steve uh, Steve and I both spend some time going through those emails and and trying to understand what it is that you want from uh, from us. Uh, our first email comes in. It's regarding Etrick. It comes from Michael. He says, hi, Noah. While listening to episode 201, I couldn't help but notice that you suggested Etrick forward the flashing of ISOs onto USB devices. For some time, I had difficulty using the app version of Etcher on Linux, and it kept complaining about the integrity of the image file and quitting unexpectedly. Today, I found out something Etcher did, in fact, make usable again. First off, there's an alternative version of Etcher, including packages for Debian-based distros, OpenSUSE, Fedora, and Arch. Detailed instructions on how to install them can be found on the project's GitHub page. I can personally attest to the the functionality of the Debian packages I used it earlier today for a tutorial I'm working on. I want to thank you for the years of service to the Linux community, and I hope that this information falls in the right hands. I can personally attest to this functionality in the Debian package. I used it earlier. Oh, I'm, re- I'm repeating myself. But hey, you know what? Thanks, Michael, for writing in. We really appreciate the update, and it's nice to hear how this stuff works uh, in practice. I was not aware that there was a Debian package. Um, I typically used the app image and not had any issues uh, myself, but... I think this underscores the uh, another a larger issue that there are some shortcomings with uh, universal packaging, and so it's great that developers still support the traditional methods of of software distribution. Uh, our second email comes from. Eloy, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He says, hi, Noah. First of all, thank you very much for your passion on the Destination Linux Network and other podcasts. You're awesome. My name is Eloy, Eloy Garcia Almanden, and I'm from Spain. I have a very big, I'm a very big fan of the ButterFS file system. I've been using it at work and at home for several years now, and it has saved my bacon several times. When you use a distro like Arch, it's a good thing to be able to roll back your system should something go wrong. I've been developing a GUI ButterFS tool called Butter Manager. Neil Gompa named it in the last Ask Noah show because ButterFS is now 
in the news thanks to Fedora as I write you this email. If you want to test it, the best way is on Arch or Manjaro because it's directly from the AUR repo. Nevertheless, it can be installed in other distros. This is the GitHub repository for the project page. It's github.com slash agira slash buttermanager. Please check out the documentation before. In the last version 1.9, buttermanager is integrated with Grub Butter FS package. That means that after creating a snapshot of your system, you'll be able to boot from this snapshot by selecting it at the Grub menu. It's very easy. In addition, I have an additional repo with some tips on how to install Arch Linux using ButterFS. The partitions you need, the ButterFS layout, are very important and more. The URL for this case, in case you're interested, is github.com slash agira slash arch dash butterfs dash installation. Again, thanks for all the hard work and keep it up. Eloy. Eloy, thank you so much for this community resource. This is absolutely fantastic. Now, we'll have both of these GitHub repositories linked in the show notes. You can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com slash 202 for this episode. Again, thanks for writing in. It's really great to see real-world success stories, uh, particularly now that ButterFS has become the default file system in Fedora. So, uh, And let us know when you get your tutorial out. We'd love to promote that. Our third email comes in. Dear Noah, we recently had a baby at home, and so it's been a challenging time calling in or getting into chat to ask my questions. Hopefully this message will make it through. This is a little long, but I'll try to be concise and list my goals, what I have today, my questions. Here's what I've tried so far. I would like to enable a VPN connection for my devices from the internet to my home. Separately, I would also like to self-host photos of our baby in a friendly, toward less tech-savvy family members. The photos must be available outside of the VPN, such as a web app so that they can log into it. The photo solution should be able to share the data from existing directories containing photo files, ideally also video files. I have a free no IP account, 5 megabits per second upload speeds, equivalent uh, equipment for hosting and network VMs. PFSense is my home router and configured for separate WAN, production LAN, DMZ interfaces, and networks. A QNAP NAS is the quote-unquote production LAN that can make these shares available in read-only or read-write-through NFS 2, 3, or 4. What's the best path forward to meet the goals of simultaneously permitting VPN access at my home while also self-hosting photos that don't require a VPN to access? What's a good photo-sharing solution? Should I be putting these services on the DMZ? What kind of networking should I be configuring to make sure all of these work? Are there any tutorials I can follow? I was originally thinking of using WireGuard, my production LAN, NextCloud, the DMZ, and a firewall rules as appropriate forward ports. R slash self-hosted suggested NextCloud might not be appropriate as a read-only photo gallery and suggested maybe I check out the awesome self-hosted GitHub page for alternative ideas. I've tried a few of these internally. Each of the solutions I've tested so far leaves... Uh, leaves a little to be desired. Additionally, many resources online suggest to avoid port forwarding altogether and instead use a reverse proxy to access all of the resources and to keep the resources on the production land. PFSense has packages for Squid and HAProxy, and it looks like this is also possible with Nginx on a separate VM. I know absolutely nothing about reverse proxies, how to set them up or how to leverage them. I tried configuring Squid and HAProxy, but this was unsuccessful. At this point, I'm unsure how to proceed. So I guess, Steve, since you're here with me, what would you do in this situation? We're going to break this apart a little bit. I, less, I guess let's start out. We'll, we'll address his photo sharing and his, um, and his home network security concerns separately. So let's talk about his self-hosted services. He's got s- some services that he wants access to from his devices while he's outside of the house. How would you handle that? So I actually do this same thing with my in-laws because... Um, 
where possible, I don't put things out in the cloud. And while this has been a little bit of contentious issue here at home because my wife and her family communicate over Facebook, essentially, I expose our, our NextCloud instance to the internet. Uh, and I make sure that I back up these files three ways from Sunday. So I also don't mount the files directly on the NextCloud. I have a ZFS uh, file store and they get mounted into the physical box that hosts NextCloud. And then I expose NextCloud on port 443 with proper certificates and stuff like that. So that's how we've chosen to do it ourselves. Okay. I, uh, I, he, he, he talks about setting up a, a reverse proxy. And regardless of if this is even uh, the right answer in this solution or the right solution for this particular question, it's a valuable thing to know, to understand what, an, uh, what a reverse proxy is and how to use it. And so I've linked a simple tutorial on how to set up Nginx as a reverse proxy. At least then you'll get an idea of the concepts behind a reverse proxy and how to implement one before you actually try and do it in production. And then what I would do for actual access to the network you know uh, for me steve i always look at vpns as kind of a this was how we were designed to structure the front door of our network we know that we want certain people to get in so we know that we want to keep other people out and so it seems like vpn is a good way to go now we've got a couple of choices here you mentioned wireguard wireguard is great and even in production i think wireguard is great but so far because it's a newer protocol and because the setup, while as easy as setting up an SSH key, is still primarily done in the CLI. Um, I would recommend looking at uh, OpenVPN. Now, the good news for you about OpenVPN is that OpenVPN is built right into PFSense, and so you're not really going to need to do anything different. Better yet, um, the GUI and the security model in uh, in PFSense is is designed from the ground up to support this very thing that you can go into the wizard and just generate a, uh, a, a an open an open VPN server and it will walk you through the creation of the certificates and passwords and accounts and all of those kinds of things. The other thing that I think is is really great here is PFSense allows you to export um, your config file and they have a package to do that called OpenVPN-Client-Export and so you'll go to the OpenVPN tab. You'll run the server configuration wizard. It will generate everything it needs to do to set itself up as an OpenVPN server. By the way, you can and should change the default OpenVPN port to something that isn't default. And I don't really believe in security through obscurity. I don't believe in security through hiding. However, if somebody's looking for OpenVPN uh, servers, they're going to look on the default OpenVPN port. If you change that, uh, at least the attacker has to start without the assumption that he knows what's running on that port. The other thing I find that's genuinely beneficial is I've been to certain business centers and I've been to certain restaurants that will restrict traffic on um, on certain ports and, and VPN is one of the ones because they want you to go through their internet for whatever reason. And so uh, the nice thing about OpenVPN is it can, it can be kind of uh, sneaky that way and, and live anywhere. Whatever you do... Um, You'll want to have a separate solution for your self-hosted photos, or at least I would. Uh, now, Steve, you said that you're using NextCloud. Do you give access to your NextCloud instance to other family members? So the way that it works is you know that NextCloud can share things between individual users inside of the same hosted instance. Right. So I have 
an account that I will expose for them and they get a read only copy of something that is mounted in for say under my wife's account. So she can she can go in and manipulate her own pictures, but if we use the guest accounts plural because you should never use just one of them for all the things, they only get a read only access and oftentimes I will even do so much as limit because inside of Nextcloud you can actually say only expose this to another user for a certain amount of time. And so I use that functionality very heavily. So if you were to get one of my guest accounts right now, there would be nothing in it because all of those share links have expired. Sure. That's a, that's a great way to do it. And what I like about it is it encompasses security. So there are two main self-hosted uh, options out there for hosting photos. If you want the go-to, what should I use for self-hosting photos? Uh, Pygo, which is, Py, or excuse me, Pywego, pywego.org, and Lynchy, lynchy.electris.com. We'll have links for both of those for you in the show notes. Full disclosure, I've not used Lynchy. I've only used Pywego. And um, I, it, again, and this may be what you're referring to when you say that the, it leaves a little bit to desire, little bit to be desired. That may very well be the, the situation with PyWigo. I wasn't able to lock it down quite the way I wanted to. Um, I'll tell you what I'm doing, and it doesn't sound like it's nearly as elaborate as, as your setup, Steve. Um, or, and, and so this may not work for you, but what I've gone is the route of just distributing those con uh, distributing that content inside of matrix and element because in this way it's in a secure chat they also have the permissions ability to set up uh, things as an announcement room so it kind of comes through more or less like a uh, like you would expect um, a newsletter kind of a thing um, and that allows people to do the reactions uh, to the photos and and share around and, and tag other people but not post inside of that room. So it's not the most elegant solution. The The other thing that I've been playing with a little bit, but again, it, it talk about leaves a lot to be desired is matrix live blogging. And so the ability to post a mes message in matrix and have that picture video uh, message just come out as a blog post. Um, and th that technology is there, but it's in its infancy. And so Steve's next cloud approach is a, is a, is a great way to go. Um, I would also, if you haven't, I'd check out PyWego. That's, uh, that's the direction I would be skating towards if there was a little bit more security involved. Again, so oh, go ahead. myself, if I was uh, doing this over again, I might even check out um, Plex because Plex mm. has a whole photo album now. They didn't have that when I started, and I've, I've been a Plex past member for, I don't know, a decade or something like that. It's It would make it really simple. It gives you a nice interface. You don't have to really worry about much about the security because Plex handles almost all of that. So that is another option that is low-hanging fruit. Okay, yeah. Have you have you played with MB or Jellyfin or any of the Plex alternatives? Not for several years. I, I played with MB before they went um, open core, and it was okay. There was It was okay, but at the time, Plex was still much further ahead. Fair enough. Hey, our pick of the week this week is Darling HQ. You can learn more at darlinghq.org. Now, Darling is a translation layer that lets you run your macOS software on Linux. Darling runs macOS software directly without using a hardware emulator. And like Linux, Darling is, is free and open source software. It's developed openly on GitHub and distributed under the GNU GPL license version 3. Darling implements a complete Darwin environment. Mock, DYLD, LaunchD, everything you'd expect, at least if you're a Mac user, because I have no idea what any of that stuff is. But 
we aim to they aim to fully integrate apps running under Darling into the Linux desktop experience by making them look, feel, and behave just like native Linux apps. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, this looks a lot like Wine. And indeed, Wine does let you run Windows software on Linux. Darling does the same thing for Mac OS. And so another similar project is Anbox for Android apps. As for GUI apps, they're getting close. They, quote, almost this took us a lot of time and effort, but we finally have a basic experimental support for running simple graphical applications. It requires some special setup for now, so do not expect this to work out of the box just yet. We're working on this. Stay tuned. As to the Apple EULA, they say, no, we only directly use the parts of Darwin that are released as fully free software. So you don't have to worry about Apple coming after these guys uh, down the road. Uh, in in pursuit of a of, of a lawsuit of any way, um, so this is a really great project. I I I'm excited to see that this stuff is is popping up and becoming available. And so if you choose to run Linux as your desktop operating system, and maybe needed that one application or two applications uh, very soon, we might see that happen. Our gadget of the week this week is the Pinebook Pro, specifically the Pinebook Pro running Manjaro ARM, the new default for the Pinebook Pro. We'll talk about that in a second. I have had a couple of requests from people asking me, how does the Pinebook Pro work with Type-C charging? Well, I'm happy to tell you that after digging into it this week, I have not found a Type-C charger that the that the Pinebook Pro doesn't recognize and charge for, to include the Type-C chargers that mount uh, right into the wall. So I've talked about this on a, on a previous episode. It's a uh, a wall outlet that has a Type-C charger built into it. And indeed, the Pinebook Pro charges off of that. thing I like about the Pinebook Pro, as I've been playing with this week, is the ability to flash the operating system as many times as you want onto the laptop. And specifically, you can flash it onto the SD card. Indeed, the computer prefers to boot from the SD card. But from there, you're running an operating system, and you can then download an operating system, flash that operating system, onto the EMMC controller. Again, you're booted at this point from the SD card. Um, this uh, enables you to do some really cool things, right? Because now every SD card that you have laying around can become a spare or differently configured operating system for experimentation or playing or, in my case, teaching my kids. And I, I really believe that this represents a, a new direction for technology. And you can mark this date in the show when I think this is starting, but this kind of technology is the start of a world where it's not about corporate games. It's not about it's it's a, it it comes down to leveraging the true power of technology to increase the quality of life for its users rather than pad the pocketbooks of the people um, in in charge of the businesses. And so this is where that think digital campaign that we referenced back in episode two hundred for Alta Speed is about. You should be able to make the decision about where your data is stored, who has access to it. And the technology to do that is becoming better every day. And this is an example of that technology. The documentation for this laptop, the pictures were phenomenal. Every time I had an issue or I wanted to know how something worked and I went to look it up, being able to see the pictures of where all the wires are supposed to run and where all of the parts are and what they are. By the way, you can order every spare part right from their site. So if you wanted to just order all the parts and assemble the thing, you could do that, I suppose. Uh, Everything. Everything on this laptop is open. And that has led to me starting to feel like I finally own my computer again, a computer that finally wants me to do whatever it is I want to do with a piece of hardware that I purchased. And ARM is getting more powerful. NVIDIA sees obviously a bright future in ARM. Now we have the opportunity to simply swap the SD card out and try different operating systems. That is a totally different ball game than the computer world that we lived in five years ago. And is this ready to replace my daily driver? No. 
but I'd say it's more than halfway there and it costs a tenth of my of my daily driver. So take that for what it's worth, I guess. In the news this week, Manjaro Arm 20-10 is being released. The stock OS on the Pinebook Pro was good, but Manjaro Arm has become the new default, and frankly, I can understand why. It makes this computer sing. So the first thing I noticed right off the bat is they have a specific installer for the EMMC uh, chip. Why that's important or of note is because when I first got the Pinebook Pro, one of the first things I went to do was I thought, I want to reinstall the operating system. I want to see how it works. How does the bootloader work? How can I do encryption? What other things can I try on here? And I was somewhat disappointed to learn that I would try to download an operating system and it didn't recognize that eMMC uh, 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 storage device. And so Manjaro Arm, none of that worked right out of the box. And as usual, uh, with Archbase distros, the beautiful thing is once you install it and you get it up to date, then it's just Pac-Man Tech S and you can do whatever you want. And it simply just appears. Uh, I needed a bunch of utilities to 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 test this thing out and kind of play with it. And I didn't have a ton of time. I just had a few hours, but it was it was easy just to sit down. Pac-Man Tech S, I need this, I need that. And all of a sudden, I didn't even know sometimes did this even exist for ARM? Well, I guess so because it just showed up. And I've been using Manjaro ARM on on both the Pinebook and the Pine Phone because I purchased the Pine Phone with the Convergent package, um, and I haven't had a chance to really dig into that. But what I noticed about the Pinebook uh, with Manjaro, smooth, professional desktop operating system, no doubt. Um, it is a little bit more performant than the original stock operating system to the point that I was using it for a few hours and completely forgot I wasn't on my primary ThinkPad. Frequent thing with Pine 64, you just get more than you pay for. And it, it's not perfect. Uh, I had I had some small issues, like I couldn't make a, a, a shortcut on a, on the desktop for some of the app icons. Um, but 20.10 has been released, and I had a chance to, to play with this just briefly. They've been working on a new GUI app to make it easy for users to flash the Manjaro ARM image onto the SD card or the eMMC card. Uh, and you simply install a Manjaro ARM flasher and launch it. Uh, and from there, this will download and flash the image of your choice. Now, I tried to use um, some sort of a flashing image that I'm not sure if it was this one exactly. I didn't have much success with it, but just DDing the image straight onto the eMMC controller worked fine. Uh, and so this release sports for the first time a setup for all images via SSH, which means the first boot, you're going to be asked about the following. Your keyboard, username, additional groups, full name, password, password for root, your time zone, your locale, and your host name. And I had an opportunity to run that. And is a, it's a basic but very functional UI. The most important thing was, though, it worked every single time. And I know that because I ended up reflashing it multiple times and trying a bunch of different things. And so the alpha images are available for PinePhone and PineTab are also available with Posh, Lamari, and Plasma Mobile. They're not able to make images for all supported devices, and so if your desired image is on a specific device and does not exist, then please use the Manjaro-ARM-Installer to install it to the SD or eMMC card. one 855 no, it's 855-450-6624, the email, live at com. Adam calls from Illinois. Hey, Adam, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi there, Noah. Um, good to talk to you. So uh, my question is similar to the uh, previous question that came in about uh, home server. I guess there's a big interest in that right now. And I'm kind of looking to do, as you've 
I think advised or suggested move away from cloud services and take things in-house. Um, so I'm, but I'm, I, I'm trying to figure out things from a hardware perspective. Um, and I'm wondering if you have any advice for a guy starting off with uh, basement space, um, looking to probably run something like Proxmox with, you know, uh, I'm thinking a lot of containerized services, probably NextCloud, Home Assistant, other type things. Uh, setting something up with some room to grow, I hope, and price versus performance sort of payoff. You know, I've looked at some older um, server hardware, you know, kind of like a, a Dell R610 or something like that, and I, I honestly don't know if that's a good choice or if I should be thinking about, you know, other options to start off with. Yeah, I so I uh, what I would suggest you do is I would suggest you virtualize with something like an R610, R710. Um, maybe a 720, uh, as I, I somewhat hesitate to recommend the 710 anymore because it's, it's getting a little old on the tooth, but you know, if you're just getting started, you don't have any massive VMs that you're wanting to run. It will probably serve you pretty well. Um, you can still get them with 128 gigs of Ram. Um, the nice thing about doing that is you're going to set yourself up to try something, tear it down and then set it up again, right? If you have a virtualization infrastructure, and I might suggest you look into LibVirt. Uh, Steve, I don't know if you have a, a, a second suggestion for a hypervisor, um, but w going that route, regardless of what you use for the virtualization technology, you're going to set yourself up so that if you try one platform for a router and you don't like it, you just delete that VM and do it over again. And you try Jellyfin. That doesn't work. Plex, oh, that, that works better for me. This, However it is, as you experiment and kind of grow into whatever it is you need, um, you'll be able to do that, I think, a little bit more with a little bit more flexibility if you're if you're utilizing things like containers and virtualization. Um And yeah, I think that I, I have an R710 that runs the virtualization in my house. Um, if that tells, if that, if that does that give you something to start with for sure for sure yeah i mean um uh, and and while i'm picking your brain on on the matter as well i know you've mentioned but i couldn't i couldn't recall what it was um you know some affordable server racks starting off like it sounds like maybe the dell 720 uh, that might be something i look into mm -hmm. um and and then uh, yeah what what do you have that stored in um, so there's a couple different ways you can do it. Uh, if you want the quote unquote proper way to do it, um, you should get a four post rack. Uh, if you do that, I'd recommend something like a StarTech. Uh, you can buy a StarTech 12U rack for maybe $250 and I'll, I'll have a link for that for you in the show notes. Um, but the other way that you can go about doing it, um, is you can, if you're, if you're not going to host a lot of servers, what you can do is you can use a two post, uh, rack shelf. And and um, and set your server, obviously set the center of the server in the center of the two posts. Um, but if you don't have a lot of spare room in your basement, I've seen that done with some success. Uh, so it can be kind of a, a way to get by. And, of course, a two-post rack is going to be um, about half the price of the four-post once so you be able to pick those up for under $100. That would be awesome. Yeah, I think I want to, you know, start off rather modestly. You know, not so modest that I end up being, you know, crippled in experimenting and trying things out but um then then move on from there for sure if i may Please. um i don't know how much sound is a, an issue for you uh, but in my 
in my household, sound would be a, a big problem. So I can't actually go with um, rack servers because it doesn't matter where you stick those things. They make just a ton of noise. So my infrastructure, uh, granted, probably overkill for what you have, but I I've went with um, micro ATX boards with Ryzen processors in them, and then you can slap a good silencer on them, and you can get some really compact cases for these and throw some SSDs in there and shove them out of the way. So it takes care of noise and space kind of in one. It's it's a little more expensive, but if that's a factor for you, it's something to consider. Okay. Yeah, I think, in, you know, in the basement where I'm planning on putting this, sound may not be as much as a factor, but um, that's something to consider. Well, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Give us a call back. Let us know how that ends up working out for you. And uh, obviously, if it doesn't work, then give us a call back, and we'll we'll see if we can uh, figure something else out. Again, 855-450-NOAA. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. This episode, Steve Ovens from Red Hat joins us. We're going to give you an introduction to C-Groups. You've probably heard about them before. You've probably heard them mentioned at conferences. We're going to get your feet wet. Uh, so, Steve, welcome, uh, or uh, thank you for continuing to be here throughout the program with us. Um, I guess let's jump into it. For somebody who maybe hasn't heard of C-Groups, Steve, what are C-Groups? So, C-Groups are known as control groups. And they're a mechanism that's built into the kernel and has been there for a significant period of time, which help to manage the distribution of resources on a system. So it's a collection of processes that are bound together based on some constraint that you as a system administrator decide. Okay. So essentially, they, I, I guess they let us manage the system resources. Yeah, the idea behind this is if you've got a bunch of processes on a system that are competing for resources, C groups are what allows the system administrator to decide which ones get priority and which ones don't. Okay. What are controllers and why are controllers useful? So getting back to the idea of controlling the resources on your system, a controller is an individual facet that the the kernel may control. So... For example, the kernel controls CPU time, it controls RAM and network access and other things like that. So each one of those types of things are controllers and there are 13 of all, 13 in total. So if there, if you start configuring them, controllers are useful because it sets up a series of rules on a box that the system is then able to handle resource contention when it happens. So it allows the system to prioritize some things over others and it also allows you to do a level of resource accounting so everybody's pulled up top before and tried to figure out what is eating up all of the space or what is eating up all of the memory or whatever right and you're trying to troubleshoot this when you enable c groups there is an extra option to allow for um, accounting. And what this means is in a system that may have a whole bunch of similar processes, which you might take a while to sleuth out in some of the traditional tools, with C groups, there's a couple of different tools you would use that will help you nail down exactly what's eating up the specific resource you're after. So there's something called system D-CG top, and it's 
just another top program, but what it does is it sorts things based on the C groups that exist on your system. And it shows all the normal things, like the amount of CPU or RAM that, assist, that a process is taking. And what you can do from that is you can grab the C group and then go further down and say, okay, if I use the command systemd-cgls, it will actually give you a breakdown of all of the C groups on your system, including which granular commands are involved in a specific C group. So that allows you to go in and say, okay, this is particularly helpful on a system with containers in it because you may get a whole bunch of containers running in a similar process and you need to know which container is eating up all of the resources so you can either go and kill it or make more allowances for it. You know, you, so it's, oh, I'm sorry, continue. No, no, go ahead. Uh, I, w I was going to say, you know, you mentioned that uh, you mentioned containers, and I think a lot of people um, have uh, associate C groups with containers. But talk about the history of C groups. How long have they been around? Did they come around the time of containers, or were they around a little bit before that? So C groups have been part of the kernel since 2007. They were they were in the staging tree in 2006. So that's about. Uh, kernel 2.6.24. And most of what we know as C groups have been around since at least the 2.6 kernel. So they got added slowly over time. And I believe it's only the last three or four out of 13 that have have been in the three, three series kernel. And then there was one recent entry in the 4.5 kernel. So they've been around significantly longer than Linux containers, even though the idea of containers has been around for a while with BSD jails or Solaris zones in Linux container land. C groups kind of came first. So if I'm sitting at my computer, Steve, is there any way for me to kind of visualize or go look at a C group? How can I, how can I actually experience this on my system in, in, in just kind of a discovery sort of way? So all Linux systems have a C group and everything gets mounted into a C group hierarchy. Most systems do not have anything more than root. You can think of this kind of like partitioning your disk. Just like back in the old days when you partition your disk, if you just let the auto thing do its job, it would just dump everything on the root partition. And it's the same thing with C groups. Most systems, unless they have been um, specifically adjusted, simply dump everything in the root C group. And you can find that by navigating to, pardon me, I let go of the control. It's, it's inside of the sys file system. So it's a, a virtual file system. And if you wanted to go in there, there's a sys C groups directory that, that will show you what's currently active on your system. Very cool. And uh, if there is no uh, contention for resources, if, if nothing is trying to fight, then the C groups just do nothing? So if there's no contention and you haven't put any quotas on the system and we'll probably touch on that in a little bit if there are no quotas on the system and no contention then a process is allowed to take as much uh, resources as it needs we're talking about confining things and restricting things uh, is there a security aspect to this steve do c groups provide any security or is it just purely about resource management so it's part of security in depth so it's not 
part of security as what you might naturally think of. So it has more to do with how your system is responding to events. So for example, with C groups, you can actually constrain the ability to read or write to devices, as well as restrict the ability to access the mkmnod command. Now most people probably haven't ever dealt with this command because it's it's pretty low level. But what its function is, back before UDEV, this thing was able to create devices on the fly which would allow programs to communicate with each other. It kind of acted like a glorified pipe to pipe output from one program to another. The reason why this ties into security is because if you're running a three-letter agency and you want to be absolutely sure that every program is doing what it's supposed to, you're probably going to want to restrict this functionality. In addition, there are some uh, aspects of C groups which allow you to do things like prevent a fork bomb. Now, this isn't directly security related, but if you're trying to DDoS a system or otherwise bring it down, one of the ways you might do that is by creating something that's called a fork bomb. So in Linux, when you have a process, this process can become a parent process by spawning another process underneath of it. So if we think of like Apache, where it's serving a web server, like it's serving a web page, and it gets a whole bunch of requests, it can spawn up other instances of itself in order to help accommodate the load. And that's called creating a subprocess or a child. A fork bomb is where you create a copy of a copy of a copy so many times that all of the resources on a system will be used up and then either the system can't respond or it simply crashes. So these are kind of ways where it's not directly security related, but you can use these as a way to help mitigate some attacks against you. Steve, what are the differences between version one and version two? I know that um, there has been there is a, there is a change coming, and some of some of the work or most of the work has been done on version two. But kind of where are we at, and what do people need to know, particularly if they're a system administrator and they're thinking to themselves, you know, I would like to use C groups. I would like to be able to manage my resources better. What are they going to need to know when it comes to versioning? So largely, it's it's. As an end user, it's kind of transparent to you at this point, as a consumer of it. If you're a person who's going to construct C groups, there is a bit of a change. The largest change that happens between version one and two is the way that you lay out your group. So in version one, the way that it works is you lay out a group with the hierarchy of the thing you're going to control. So say I want to control memory and I want, to control, I want to constrain the memory of a certain process. If you think of this like a folder hierarchy, you go into the memory directory, then you create yourself another directory called the name of the group, and then you put a bunch of processes inside of that. And any processes that you list in that group under the memory is then constrained to whatever rules you put on the memory controller, if you're following me so far. I am. In version 2, what happens is you don't constrain based on the controller. You create your group, and then under the group name, you start adding in 
all of the different controller types you want associated with that group. And so that's really the largest change. If, if you're really interested in more of the technical, I'd encourage you to go look up on YouTube and other places where there have been plenty of really good discussions about what, what's changing from one to two. That's awesome. And it's, it's good to, 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 to know how this works uh, under the hood. Um, Steve, I know this is a bit of a complicated question um, to, to, to try and answer on air, and so we'll do the best we can. If people want more information, they should probably go take a look at your very well-done four-part series that is going to explain this in greater depth and has the advantage of images. But can you talk about what CPU shares are and how they're related to C groups? Yeah, this this one gets really hard to describe without visuals. So I'm not going to touch on this too much, but a CPU share is a way for the system to place weights on a process. So in a very basic sense, if you have two processes that are fighting for time on the CPU in the C group world, it's going to the system will look at the arbitrary number that you assign to each process. So for ex the most common examples you're going to see is one process is going to have a CPU weight of 1024 and one process is going to have a weight of like, I don't know, 512. And from that, it determines that process with 1024 gets double the amount of CPU time that the process with 512 has. And for more information than this, you really need to start looking at diagrams because it gets there's a lot of math involved with how to understand CPUs breaking down. It gets complicated in a hurry. There's a lot of people that I even when I was doing research and seeing what was out there, I found that there was a lot of uh, people that really didn't understand the math well enough. And so I took the time to actually show by example with screenshots like here's how I'm applying the different weights and this is how you can see it's reflected inside of this VM that I'm working on. So that's about all I think I'm going to say on air about this. Sure, sure. Yeah, and with the aid of visuals and with the aid of reading it through it, Steve has done a really great job of, of breaking it down. So do that and then give us a call back if you have any specific questions. Steve, talk about NetCLS and how this can be used. So NetCLS is interesting. It's one of the newer things that have been added into control groups. I mean, it's not brand new because most of the stuff has been baked for a while. But NetCLS is a controller for your network, specifically for tagging packets as they leave the C group. And what this is used for is for external programs like a firewall or traffic shaping with tools like TC to be able to look at these tags and be able to make routing or traffic shaping decisions based on the tags you add to your packets. You can kind of think this of roughly like VLAN packets where you can VLAN tags are associated to a specific thing and you can make rules based on the tags that are applied to it. It's a similar function. Okay. And Talk about NetPrio. I assume that this is uh, is similar to NetCLS? Yeah, so NetPrio came along just a little bit afterwards, and this is for handling priority of traffic leaving, um, leaving a C group. Now, what's really interesting about this is this is controlled per NIC. So the way that you set up NetPrio is you say, on Ethernet 0, 
give this process some number. The, the net prior numbers by convention only range from one being the lowest priority to 10. But as far as I'm aware, there's no actual upper bound in terms of the weighting, but that's most people don't need any more than, than that range to help sort around priority. Now the question is, why would you want to do this? So the easiest example is if you have a box that's doing file sharing and you've got Samba and NFS running on the same box. We know that, that NFS will, go, will have stale links if it doesn't respond within whatever its tolerance is. Whereas Samba is a little more tolerant of having network disruptions. It'll automatically reconnect and all the rest of that. So if you have a busy server, you would use NetPrio to say, give a priority of five to NFS and maybe a priority of two to Samba so that it's low, but not the lowest. And then what would happen is if your box was having to serve a lot of files, NFS ends up being given higher priority on the network card than Samba does. And so that's kind of the main reason why you would look into something like this. Okay. How about Freezer? What is Freezer and how can Freezer be used? So Freezer is one of those really advanced features that you only use if you have a really specific use case. What happens is when you insert tasks inside of a C group, so a bunch of PIDs, you can then actually use Freezer to put a halt to all of those processes at once, but it's a temporary halt. And it, it's different than using like SIG kill, for example. What this allows you to do is you can either use this as a checkpointing facility. So it's kind of a similar mechanism to taking a dump of a database where it stops everything for a moment in time so that you get, get a consistent snapshot. So you can use this to take a consistent state of a certain number of processes. With this consistent state, if you decide that you need to move data from one node to another in a cluster, you can actually pick up the, that data that's now been frozen, move it to a different node, and unfreeze it on a different node. So you can thaw it somewhere else. The other use case you have for Freezer is it's used during high-performance computing, and you might have really, really latency-sensitive workloads. And so some clients will actually have a, like a watchdog script that anytime a, an HPC process comes through, a high-performance process comes through, it will freeze out all of the other tasks so that that HPC process gets the maximum priority, and then it will thaw everything else out after that chunk of work has gone through. So this is something that I'd say like 99% of people are never going to interact with. Yeah, let's talk about how to interact with this. So this sounds like a phenomenally powerful function, but it sounds like a phenomenally complicated function. So is this the kind of thing that's really best left um, to your management of your containers? And so somebody back in the day when they were coming up with this technology said, hey, if we bake this into the kernel, we'll have a lot of flexibility and a lot of power. But the way to actually utilize that power is to is to use the control mechanisms put in place by containers. Or is this designed for you to be able to, you know, SSH in and kind of play with it under the hood? Well, 
I can only, not having read the actual commits, like the proposal for this, this went in a long time ago. So we're talking 2.6.28. So circa 2007, well before containers went mainstream. Now, it's possible that because a large part of the contributors for C groups were from Google, they had containers in mind. But largely, um, what I see around questions about freezers is more about the HPC or the system admin that is really, really trying to fine tune a specialized workload. Fantastic. Well, Steve, Steve Ovens, he is a certified architect at Red Hat. He has a four part series on C groups and are all four parts out at this point, Steve? Yep, they are all out at this point. So we will have those linked for you at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Steve, thanks so much for taking the time to come on here and give people an introduction to C-Groups and and get them started. Uh, We'll do this again. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to get feedback from the audience. Um, I'm always open to new ideas or, you know, just generally, I don't do these things for my own ego. I do these things because someone has expressed an interest in learning more, and so absolutely get in touch with Noah or I or or whatever, get feedback into the show, and we'll work towards uh, setting up something else that might be interesting to the community. Yeah, ideas, well, shoot them over to us, live at asknoahshow.com. Again, 855-450-NOAH, that's one 855 The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Noah calls in from Ohio. Hey, Noah, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Are you there? Going once? Oh, hello, I'm hey, back. Hey there. First, I want to say it's pretty funny how my name is also Noah. <laughs> I noticed that when you called in. I was like, wow, that's a lot of Noahs in five seconds. I was thinking the exact same thing. Right. <laughs> my, sorry. My question is, um, so me and my wife love to game, and I have been recently using Linux OS since 09 on my Purism Blibrum 14. And me and my lovely wife have been looking for an upgrade between Windows or Mac OS from Wine or Darling. Respectively, we are wondering what your train of thought is on what your recommendation is. Our favorite game is uh, on the old 14 is probably Fallout 2. We are trying to find what OS offers better gaming power and performance. Thanks, Noah. Okay. Yeah, no, no worries. Um, Steve, well, your thoughts, Windows or Mac, that's not, something, uh, that's not something I've answered before. What are your thoughts? Yeah, honestly... I would probably investigate the the platform that runs natively, although Fallout 2 is a bit older at this point, so I'm not sure um, I'm not sure how well it's going to run on Windows anyways. My my actually my first thought was investigating Proton because a lot mm. of those older guys in, in especially in Proton, they get some decent performance. That would be something to look at, too. And the other thing is you wouldn't have to worry about your game platform being ripped out from under your head. If it works today in Proton, chances are you'd be set. Um, It's currently mm -hmm. gold in the Proton DB. Oh, there you go. That's totally the way to go. Would that work for you? Is that something you'd consider? Or do you, you, uh, any particular reason you want to run it native? Um, That sounds like a pretty good reason. Okay. All right. There we go. We knocked one out. Thanks, Noah. If that doesn't work, give us a call back uh, and let us know how that works out. We'd love to know. Again, 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. So, Steve, uh, one more time, Steve Ovens from Red Hat. You know, we're wrapping up our discussion on C groups, but Steve, you and I have been talking off air. Uh, the the RR uh, 
our experience with system administration and your experience working in, in all sorts of different environments uh, of all different sizes lends itself to, uh, to sharing that knowledge with other people. And, uh, and we want to do that. And so you're helping me go through feedback each week and, and interact and become a part of the community and, and help out with, uh, with, with the show. Um, people want to learn more from Steve. They can do that both uh, through your written work as well as uh, sending emails into the show and saying, hey, Steve, would you come on and explain this thing or demonstrate this? That's something you're looking to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been looking for a while to figure out how to get into helping out the community more with, you know, like you, I, I built up my career based on this thing that I was able to do when I was broke. And so, you know, I figured I'd leech on to your, your hard work and just piggyback <laughs> there. Well, that's that. I am, I'm super thankful to have you, my friend. So thanks for joining us. Um, I, uh, we're going to wrap up. This is a article that I, I pulled from last week and I, usually I don't, hold an article over for a week. Um, but I think there, again, there is a larger technology play at role here and, and so or at, at, at work here. And so I, I want to discuss it. And that is that Gitter, the, mo- the best developer community chat system out there used by some of the most massive community projects such as Node, TypeScript, Angular, uh, Scala, and a custodian of some huge archives of knowledge via their chat logs, um, is being transitioned into an Element client long-term. So essentially, Element has acquired Gitter from GitLab. And so in practice, there are a few layers to this. The first is that the Gitter web app is going to stay exactly as it is in the short term. And they're going to focus on building a, a, a better Gitter to Matrix bridge so that the Gitter community can seamlessly use uh, Gitter or Element and so that the Matrix community can seamlessly participate in Gitter chat rooms. And the bridge... Uh, is going to prove particularly useful for mobile users as the native Gitter mobile apps will have been deprecated already. The community is going to be happy to learn that Element uh, mobile apps are going to be replacing it. Now, here's, what's imp- here's, I think, where the important part of this story is. It would be very easy for Element to say, hey, we took over Gitter, so now Gitter is no more, and we're just going to transition to Element. The, the, the people that were using Gitter, they're going to use this other messaging platform instead. And what they're doing is rewriting rewriting the back end so that Gitter will actually speak the Matrix protocol. And this is, I think, what's interesting about Matrix and the Matrix, Matrix ecosystem, right? They developed Element and Synapse to showcase the protocol. Here is what Matrix is capable of doing, and so let us show you what it can do. Now they're working on Dendrite, a a, a matrix server done right. And and so that's going to have all of the bells and whistles and, and is, is written in Go instead of Python. So it's going to be a little bit more performant. Um, they are going to learn from Gitter. The instant live rooms, the instant live room peaking, less than a second to load the web app in live views of massive rooms with over 20,000 users. Seamless onboarding, thanks to GitLab and GitHub accounts. Curated uh, hair... Uh, hierarchical room directory, magical creation of rooms on demand for every GitHub or GitLab project ever. This is what uh, Gitter is bringing to the table. Excellent search friendly static content and KTAC support for math communities and threading, something that Element still doesn't have. And so what they're going to do is they're going to pull all of the best sides of Element, like the end-to-end encryption, reaction, constantly improving the native iOS and Androids app, VoIP, conferencing, those kinds of things. And they're going to combine those with all of the things that Gitter brought to the table 
those that fast room loading and they're going to combine it into one client that speaks the matrix pl- protocol on the back end but doesn't lose any of the advantage that Gitter has. And why I say I think this is symbolic of a larger technological change is because this is being done be- precisely because of open source software, because Gitter was open source to begin with, because Matrix is open source to begin with. And so when the opportunity for those two projects to come together and do something bigger and better, they were able to do that. That's why you see Element getting embedded into Nextcloud. And that's why we have so many discussions about self-hosting. Hey, thanks for joining us for this episode. If you want to download the show notes and reference all of the articles and materials that we talked about, head over to podcast.asknoahshow.com. If you want to stay up to date with the latest on the show, follow us on Twitter. That's at AskNoah. Uh, excuse me, at AskNoahShow. We'll be back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. AskNoahShow.com.